Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Jared Bumpers back in the studio as co-host as we discuss the new release of my Lectures to My Students by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Dr. Bumpers serves here at Midwestern Seminary as Assistant Professor of Preaching and Evangelism and is directing the FTC cohorts here on campus. Jared, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Thank you. Always good to be with you. Yeah, it's good to be back in the studio and, uh, man, even for us to catch up a little bit here before recording. And we're in the throes of summer. Uh, We record today. It's July 10th. And uh, this episode will drop here in the next couple of months, I suppose, sometime. But uh, it's kind of quiet on campus right now. It is. Yeah, there, there's not a lot of movement, uh, faculty ge- gearing up for the fall. But uh, student-wise, it's uh, it's always a sad time in the summer. But fall is right around the corner. We'll have students and noise and activity back on campus, which is great. Yeah, I just walked over the student center and in particular the bookstore and coffee shop for purchases in, in both stops. And just being there, just bumping into just a few people, I'm excited about the fall when there'll be a lot of people to bump into. But uh, here we are trying to uh, catch up on projects past and get ahead of projects future. And uh, one of those is just some podcasts here for Preaching and Preachers. And over the past year, you've joined me in the studio a number of times and uh, have become, as I've previously noted, co-host of the program, which has been fun for me to see you share in the stewardship. And today we get to talk about this new edition of of Lectures to My Students. And uh, if you're a listener to this podcast long term, you have heard me reference this book, no doubt, a number of times. So the book itself is not new. Spurgeon wrote this book well over 100 years ago now. But what is new is a new edition I was so pleased to partner with B&H Publishers on. And let me tell you why I was pleased. First of all, the project itself, the book itself, is just beautiful. Uh, The Mm -hmm. binding, the format, the font, the layout, everything about it is just beautiful. It is truly a collector's edition that's also most usable. But also, I'm delighted by the content itself. Uh, it is Spurgeon's content. We lightly edited it just for readability, included uh, for me a foreword on the front end, an introduction on the front end. That's at the stage of the book and uh, say a bit about Spurgeon and a bit about this work itself and what it's meant to me. So I am uh, delighted to be able to have this book now out and uh, in a very real way to partner with my hero, Charles Spurgeon, in bringing this work to our readers and to our listeners today. So we're going to be talking about the book some and the project and uh, why this is such a, a helpful and indeed perennial resource for those engaging in local church ministry. Yeah, it is a beautiful book and excited about the release. It's a classic, you know, it's a timeless book. And so the advice contained in it, I think, is beneficial for pastors of all ages and in all different levels of ministry and in stages of ministry, depending on how long they've been in ministry. So excited to talk about that. For our listeners who may not be familiar with Spurgeon, of of course, we have uh, Spurgeon's Library here on campus, our undergraduate programs, our Spurgeon College named after Spurgeon. And so he's such an influential figure in Baptist history. But for those who are not familiar with him, love for you just to give us a short biographical sketch of who was Spurgeon and why does he matter? Yeah. So, boy, there's a lot of different ways I could go with this. I I think for me, when I am asked who was Spurgeon, and by the question, if someone's asking who was Spurgeon, asking me, then they're probably not a minister. They're probably not that well of an informed even church member. So when I get that question, I usually begin by saying, well, like the 20th century had Billy Graham, the 19th century had Charles Spurgeon. And of course, our listeners who are informed know there's you know, all sorts of differences and theological differences and all the rest. But as far as a person who really captured the imagination of a, of a population, uh, who was well-known throughout a city, throughout a country, and indeed around the world. Uh, you would have in the 20th century Billy Graham, and in the 19th century Charles Spurgeon, and in the 18th century George Whitfield. And so that's how you begin by saying you can liken him to Billy Graham as far as the renown. 
as far as the widespread reputation. But more to the point, who was Charles Spurgeon? Well, he was a preacher in Victorian England. Spurgeon lived from 1834 to 1892, as I recall, and uh, became a believer, teenager. And again, all of these are significant stories I could get into, but I'm, I'm fighting the impulse to, to, to chase <laughs> rabbit trails here. But very quickly was recognized as being a phenom. At the age of 19, he becomes pastor of one of the most prestigious churches in London, and, uh, and that church began to explode. And he finds himself in his early 20s preaching uh, to massive crowds in London. And then quickly again, as a man in his 20s, becomes well-known throughout London and beyond London. And then over the next several decades, really was unlike any other in ministerial reach. So what does that reach look like? First and foremost, it was a pulpit ministry, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, preaching every Sunday, five, 6,000 people, the largest church in the Protestant world. It was also a prolific publishing ministry. His sermons every week, stenographer took them down, they were edited, and then distributed. He also oversaw uh, about 66 different ministries, orphanages, pastor's college, etc. And uh, and so he was just churning out content, churning out ministry initiatives. He also, again, as we said, he led the pastor's college. And then what you have taking place as well, this really is when the British Empire is at its zenith. Now, its territorial reach would would expand beyond Spurgeon's life after um, the final settlements of World War I. But, But as far as its influence, its economic might, its military might, its navy, its reach, I mean, this is the Victorian era. So what that means is Spurgeon's ministry really coursed through the tentacles of the British Empire. And so his sermons are going to India, to Africa, of course, to North America. Uh, His influence is around the world. And so when you go back to all of it, though, what what made his ministry so powerful, and while we're still talking about him today, I believe was the uniqueness of his pulpit ministry itself, that something happened in the pulpit every time he preached that simply captivated audiences. It led to thousands of conversions, thousands of baptisms and additions to his church, and it led to just this being ongoing sense of God is at work in this place. That's Charles Spurgeon. Yeah, and uh, one of my favorite, we have the Spurgeon Library here on campus. One of my favorite exhibits here is the path from his sermon, stenographer recording, his notes, him editing those, then putting them in the penny pulpit, and then that becoming uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle volumes that, that we, we still have. And so if you're ever in Kansas City, make sure you come check out the Spurgeon Library here on campus. Yeah, it will be a pox on your house if you don't. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you have to come. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when we think about Spurgeon, I agree 100% his preaching ministry is what he's known for. You still read his sermons, his command of the English language, vivid illustrations, preach Christ consistently, just such a powerful preaching ministry. And I, I think he's trying to pass on some of those principles and some of those convictions to his students. And so love for you to kind of move and turn the corner here and talk about lectures to my students and the timelessness of that book and the timeliness of that book. Yeah. So lectures to my students, I've already given a brief overview of it, but it really began as, as literally lectures to his students in the context of the pastor's college, often on Friday afternoons, talking about different aspects of gospel ministry. And the book you know, of course, it's biblically rich, it's theologically rich, but it really is practical in nature. It's a lot of a seasoned minister. God's hand is clearly on speaking to these other men from the overflow of his life and ministry experience about the ins and outs of local church ministry. And so he talks about everything from sober matters like the minister's self-watch and the call to ministry and private prayer to practical matters like open-air preaching and, and how to project the voice and uh, everything else in between. Talks about illustrations and preaching. Talks about sharing stories from the pulpit. 
talks about one's posture when one preaches. Uh, I mean, there's just a lot there. And I would say for perhaps the, the, the biggest misperception from those who haven't read it is they just assume this great preacher, this one who so famously defended the faith in the context of the downgrade controversy, this book must be theological and thus uh, dense and thus perhaps not that accessible. The book is actually quite accessible and it's actually quite practical. Yeah, that, that's great. If if you were to kind of reflect personally, your your first reading through the book, what what are some things that stick out? How did the book affect you early on in ministry when you first read it? Yeah, well, for me, I have to go back to my own call to ministry, and I won't get uh, too deep into the weeds here because I've reflected on this a time or two over the years in the context of this podcast. But for me, I grew up in a Christian home, Baptist church, heard the call to Christ virtually every Sunday, but resisted that until my freshman year in college. Profound sense of conviction, profound sense of, of needing Christ. I give my life to Christ my freshman year in the college. And, uh, and then the next couple of years, I basically engaging in ministry without knowing that's what I'm doing. And so when my church has an outreach event, I'm there. When our church does door-to-door invitation, I'm there. When our church offers an overseas ministry, uh, mission trip, I go. When Sunday school teaching opportunity opens up, I'm asked to lead it, I do. And so then I find myself also doing things like going to preach in prisons and, and sharing the gospel in halfway houses. So I'm doing the work of ministry for a couple of years there. And really, indeed, God is calling me the ministry, but I don't perceive that real time. And one reason I don't perceive it real time is because I had a very confused and ill-informed understanding of what a call to ministry even was. I grew up in a, in a set of a, largely a healthy church with a faithful pastor, and uh, but our kind of our vocabulary in the 1980s in our church was uh, we talk about surrendering to ministry all the time. And uh, again, as an adolescent, as a teenager, I, I just interpreted that to mean, I guess that means ministry is something you don't want to do and like you're running from this and, and you resist God's call, but but ultimately, okay, I'll, I'll just surrender. God, you win. And then I'm going to be shipped off to Africa and never be heard from again or some distant land. Hmm. And so, so for me, as I am in college— experiencing, in hindsight, I see experiencing call to ministry, I don't perceive that's what's going on then. I think I'm just doing what Christians ought to do. And I even have this growing love for the ministry, desire for the ministry, but I'm interpreting that to be unhealthy because, again, ministry isn't something you desire, I think. Hmm. Ministry isn't something you pursue, I think. And so I had a friend of mine, uh, his name's Paul Lamy, pastors now in, in the Huntsville, Alabama area, and uh, Paul was like two years older than me, is two years older than I am, but he was, you know, many years older than me in the faith and, and, and just sort of biblical formation. And, but then when, you know, when you're whatever, 20 and he's 22, he's like the, the font of all wisdom, you know. <laughs> and uh, he, he told me, he pointed me to, uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, and, uh, and to lectures to my students as we were talking about a call to ministry. And what 1 Timothy 3, of course, where Paul writes to Timothy and says, if any man aspires to the work of overseer, the office of overseer is a fine work he desires to do. Aspiration, desire, aspire, desire. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Not only is this aspiration, is this desire, not only is it not disqualifying, it is actually essential to a call to ministry. And then, you know, obviously Scripture's head of Spurgeon, but also looking at lectures to my students and Spurgeon's signs of a call to ministry. And he talks about, you know, the first sign of a call to ministry is an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work. An intense, all-absorbing desire for the work. And for me, it, it was revolutionary. I mean, my whole spiritual outlook was reframed. My sense of my life was reframed. My, my sense of calling was informed. And so Spurgeon was really key to that. And I realized, huh, not only is this book helpful to, for me to sort out a call to ministry, it's also really helpful about life and ministry, period, for those of us who are entering into it. So for, for new, uh, either aspiring men who want 
to pursue pastoral ministry or guys who are just starting out in pastoral ministry, you would say this book is beneficial in helping either A, solidify that call or B, give practical instructions. For oh, absolutely. I mean, if you know a, a person considering ministry, a young man considering pastoral ministry, give them a Bible, a good study Bible and lectures to my students. And uh, I would say to ministers, and I've not practiced this religiously over the years, but I, I would say for ministers, man, it's a great annual read. Like one of these books you just kind of choose to reread every year, or perhaps every couple of years, and you return to it again and again and again. And again, a part of the uniqueness of Spurgeon's ministry is there's just a timelessness to it. Part of it because his sermons are so content-driven, biblically content-driven, so there's not a lot of you know, reference to what Gladstone did or whoever. Yeah. <laughs> there's not a lot of pop culture references. It's just yeah. textual. And so those sermons are enduring. It's the same way with lectures to my students. The content is so rich. It's not really bound to, you know, 1870s, 1880s, early 1890s, Victorian England. It really is bound to the call to ministry itself and how one should function. Now, there's some stuff here this day. You know, the, the open-air preaching dynamics, that, that's not as common these days. Uh, we do have modern systems of amplification. And so, you know, some of this has changed, of course, but, but it largely is very much an enduring resource. So I'm hearing you say that it's beneficial for younger guys, but the, the idea of rereading it annually does suggest that there's a benefit for seasoned ministers. And so uh, maybe maybe talk a minute or two about some of the things Spurgeon talks about that you think would be beneficial for someone who's been in ministry 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Yeah, I would say first and foremost, it's beneficial for the heart. By that, I mean, it's easy to wake up one day and you're 38, 44, 56. You've been at it 10, 20, 30 years. For ministry to begin to feel perfunctory, for begin to feel to feel a little little bland, um, like any other job. But I would say, reading this book, Spurgeon throughout, as he deals again so often with the practicalities of ministry, he also deals throughout with the grandeur of ministry, the romance of ministry, the glorious calling that is a call to gospel ministry. And so, for the stewardship of one's heart, it's helpful to come to this book again and again and again. I think for every gospel minister, we ought to be reading the pastoral epistles about once a month. You can do that in one sitting, read through those. And for every gospel minister, we ought to be reading lectures to my students probably once a year, truth be known. I would say, so first and foremost, it's the stewardship of the heart. Secondly, I, I would say it does reinforce local church ministry convictions. And again, at places that's more overheard than heard here because the book does tend towards the practical. But as, a, as you're reading it, you can be reminded, oh, yeah, that's why we do this. That's why we don't do that. Hey, that's why we should pursue this. That's why we should not pursue that. So it is convictionally reinforming. Then I'll say thirdly, again, practically speaking, you do not outgrow much of this. I mean, again, some of these things are, are, are a bit bound to the 19th century, as I said, but the vast majority of the book itself is just enduring practical words of preaching, of leading, yes, leading, such on here, uh, of shepherding the flock of God, of engaging people with the gospel of Christ. I mean, there's just a lot here that you will continue to grow in. The, and those things aren't accidental. I mean, I think Spurgeon is intentional in pursuing that character formation, a desire for the local church and ministry in the context of the local church. And so I think he, he's hit his mark here. Connected to that, Spurgeon obviously wrote this, you know, or I guess first his lectures to his students that was published, but he had a desire to form and shape and train the next generation of preachers, which, which I think is significant. So love to hear you talk a little about that. We're involved in that task here, pursuing that, you know, the for the church vision uh, shapes everything that we do. And so I think there's some connectivity there, some connective tissue between what Spurgeon's doing mm -hmm. in lectures to his students and what we're seeking to do here. That's right. I would also say one great way to read this book is for older pastors to 
to read through it with younger pastors. And I know many folks who've done that over the years. And again, you look at the chapters of the book or the lectures that are broken down, they're 28. And so um, you can read you know, a lecture a week or a couple lectures a week and over the period of three months or six months or nine months or more, you know, just work through this. And as you do that, again, the younger minister in training is going to be going to be strengthened, going to be informed. The older minister is going to be sharpened as well. And then you also have the dynamic where the older minister is helping to interpret it for the younger minister. Here's what Spurgeon says. This is proven true in my minister of the years, and here's how it's proven true, that sort of thing. So I think that's, that's a, a very beneficial way to undertake it. I would say also, back, back to your question more to the point, you know, Spurgeon understood the intergenerational dynamics of gospel ministry. And so he understood that um, the gospel is evergreen, the preaching of the word is evergreen, the church is evergreen, but every generation needs a, a new generation of ministers who will serve them. Hmm. And uh, I'm not going to take you today to my home study, but in my home study, I have a, a, a moving quote by Spurgeon that talks about the next generation of gospel ministers. We need them to, we need to call them out, and we need to train them, and we need to, to see them arise. And yes, that's what we're about here at Midwestern Seminary. Uh, we now have over 5,000 students enrolled on an annual basis, and uh, that's from all degree programs, you know, undergraduate through PhD, and, and including residential and uh, non-residential programs as well. But we do care about the numbers, not because like we're trying to win some you know, enrollment award or something. No, not at all. But we realize we have a, a robust mandate from Southern Baptists, especially, uh, who own us. But beyond Southern Baptists, we are happy to serve evangelical students and evangelical churches and so forth. Well, our mandate here is to, as faithful as we can, train as many as we can who've been sent to us by the churches. And so I'm not embarrassed by having a, a program here, an institution here that's large. No, I see that as... Sign of God's favor. See, thus that is a sign of of the expansiveness of our stewardship that He's entrusted to us. So Spurgeon, similarly, he saw the need to recognize those God was calling to ministry and to influence them. And Spurgeon was not a prideful man, but he was a perceptive one, and he understood God was doing something unique in his life. He understood he was uniquely gifted. His, his powers of oratory, his powers of imagination, his powers of recall what he'd read. Uh, he was uniquely gifted by God, and Spurgeon perceived that, and he perceived the tabernacle, the metropolitan tabernacle, was a unique movement of God. He perceived the breadth of his ministries were unique in that generation. And so he is, he is wanting to gather for himself young men aspiring to pastoral ministry, influence them, and then send them out to churches. And that last point is key, because Spurgeon understood that you know, the, the church, the local church, is, is who recognizes the call to ministry, not, not the pastor's college or in our day a seminary. And so those churches would uh, see young men called to ministry and recognize that call. But also, given Spurgeon's renown, he would receive letters like by the day, you know, telegrams. We need a pastor. We need a pastor. We need a pastor. We're looking for a pastor. Can you help us? And so a part of him, his even facilitating the correspondence and the request was, was having within him, around him, this college, and he, he could get hand out or pass off these men preparing for ministry to churches who are in need of pastors. And that's a key work. Yeah, and I'd love to hear you, I know we're getting near, near the end of time here, but I'd love to hear you talk about lectures to my students in comparison and maybe other pastoral handbooks uh, that, that are out there today. I, I could name uh, all kinds of pastoral ministry related resources. You think of O.S. Hawkins ha, ha, has a handbook, Mac 
Brunson has a new pastor's handbook. Uh, Alistair Begg uh, has Derek Prime. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, Alistair Begg, Derek Prime. So there are all these different uh, resources. I think you're in the similar vein, but what would you say is, is maybe unique about lectures to my students? Or what is the enduring value that sets it apart from maybe some of those other resources? And, and th- not disparaging those resources, right, right, right. but saying, hey, here's why you should read Spurgeon. Yeah, and there, there, there are a lot of good resources out there. There are. I mean, I, I've sought to contribute it to the, through my publishing. Uh, We've we mentioned a few good books. John MacArthur has a great book on pastoral ministry, and, and there are others. I, I would say to all the names we've mentioned and others who've written in our generation, we've not yet m- mentioned, none of those are Charles Spurgeon. Yep. There's a uniqueness to his life and ministry that really is unparalleled post-Reformation. And so I think we need to, we need to pay double attention Secondly, I would say there is a, a readability and just a, a pleasure in the book itself beyond the influence, beyond the content, beyond the, uh, the data that, that you receive. There's just a pleasure in reading the book. I would say thirdly, it, it really is that Spurgeon is not just gifted in his ministry, but he's gifted in his, his diagnostic abilities. And the way he speaks to topics in this book, it is, again, striking to me how enduring these topics are. And so... This book was written now, you know, well over 100 years ago, but you could read it, and it is as relevant as tomorrow's newspaper, and it is as relevant to any contemporary book on pastoral ministry out there that I'm aware of. And so I, I say as well, you know, when you're reaching for resources, first reach for the classic before you reach for the contemporary. And this is a classic work, an enduring work, an accessible work, and I'm delighted to say also a beautiful work that we have now produced here with B&H Publishers. So I encourage it to you. Lectures to my students by Charles Spurgeon out with Brobman and Holman. And uh, I hope you'll get a copy and hope you ministers will uh, especially get a copy and work through it with younger ministers as well. Hey, Jared, thank you for helping me out in the studio today. Uh, It's always fun to be with you here. And uh, to our listeners, we sure appreciate your time and the stewardship we have together through this podcast. We pray this conversation and in particular today, this book, Lectures to My Students, will be helpful to you. God bless you. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.